Well, uh, thanks to Brian. We have we have a, a, a guest who actually works in the, you know, I, I don't know, Brian. It can be said we work in the real world, but, you know, who someone who works in the real world, not the talking with everyone in a consultative way, finding out what goes on in the real world, which which I always uh, find fun. We speak, we, we, anyways, I can go on, but I've dug myself into a strange rhetorical trap here. Why don't you introduce yourself, guest? Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. So I'm, I'm Mike Scaife. I'm head of engineering at JLR, Jaguar Land Rover in the UK, for those don't know. Um, so I'm at a place called the Digital Delivery Center in Manchester in the UK. So we essentially are JLR's digital software engineering DevOps hub up here in the Northwest of the UK. Uh, been here for about five years or so, um, building various software systems with JLRs. I'm sure we'll talk about in this session. Uh, my background personally, so I started out as a software engineer, different types, moved into sort of architecture, technical leadership, you know, being sort of head of engineering here. So it was, it was a brand new, um, brand new team, brand new capability for JLR five years ago, and we built it out now to being here yeah, hundred or so different engineers, dev, test, SRE platform, security, etc. Uh, yeah, doing some hopefully some interesting stuff. Uh, yeah, here to talk to you. And, and so, so it sounds like, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're in a part of the company. I mean, exactly what I'm always interested in where you write the software. I mean, you and the people that you work with your group, you, you write the software, the custom software that, uh, that JLR uses, right? I mean, which, which is, that's great. You went from programmer to, uh, you know, managing other programmers and and the bit, the big thinking and things like that, which is always a topic on its own. So. So the first thing I, I was I was interested in talking about is, um, you know, I've I've been around long enough to know at least that I have this kind of like uh, naive understanding of of the software that companies do. Like it's especially apparent in banking, where like in in finance, there's all sorts of stuff they do. But my view of banking is just like I log in and look at my accounts and pay bills. And so like anytime I think about software, it's always that. And I talk with uh, you know some of your peers, Brian, in in your group, and they'll be like. Cote, Cote. That's such a small part of banking. There's so many other things that, that go. So like, what is like when, when y'all are working on like the software that JLR uses, like what is the software? Like, what does it do? How does it fit into what the business needs? Yeah. Good question. So I'll give you an overview of, of all the different software in JLR and I'll talk about the, the bit that we specifically work on, I guess. So, I mean, obviously software is everywhere these days in, in automotive, uh, so the car itself, um, with software, so the, the most obvious part there is what we call the infotainment system, that sort of screen on your dashboard with your sat-nav, Apple CarPlay, etc. Um, behind the scenes on the vehicle, if you like, there's obviously a ton of other software, so I think there's something like close to 100 different uh, what's called ECUs or electronic control units on the vehicle, doing all mm. sorts of you know braking systems, engine management, uh, autonomous driving, cruise control, lights, brakes, everything's kind of software control these days, right? ton of stuff on there and actually kind of yeah you're, you're embedded software you see you see the, the real hardcore stuff um around the vehicle so you've got um mobile apps so if you buy a fancy jaguar or a land Rover, you get a mobile app with the car that lets you use various connected services so you can you know lock and unlock your vehicle remotely you can set the temperature while you're having your breakfast and warm or cool down warm up or cool down your car while you're eating breakfast you know important stuff like that um and then you've got kind of yeah various systems I guess, customer facing web system. So obviously you can buy a vehicle online, you can configure a vehicle, buy a, like your finance deal, all that sort of stuff. We've got, you know, a, a service where you can buy a vehicle on a subscription basis, for example. Um, there's various kind of, again, connectivity around, yeah, connected services like um, the app I talked about, there's various APIs around the vehicle that can sort of do various features of the vehicle. 
we can send software updates to a vehicle, which is one of the areas we work on, so I'll talk about in a second. Uh, then there's other stuff you don't think about behind the scenes again, so like manufacturing plants, again, all software driven, right? Robots, manufacturing systems, all the scheduling of that, massively complex, all software driven. Um, other kind of business HR systems behind the scenes as well. Um, design, design user software, yeah, vehicle testing increasingly uses software. So rather than smashing physical cars into a wall, we try and use sort of software to do that and virtualize it. That seems like an improvement. Let's <laughs> well, but improving. Paper, <laughs> less, less expensive, yeah. So it's, it's everywhere, essentially, right? And there's, there's sort of like finance systems, all sort of usual business software on the scene. Um, so a bit where my team specifically fit in, it's, it's essentially what's called off-board web systems, essentially. So uh, we're not doing the vehicle, the software on the vehicle itself, we're doing the stuff around it. So we do a lot of APIs and connectivity. So that mobile app that I mentioned, we do the um, uh, manager subscriptions and the APIs that provision those subscriptions on the vehicle. Um, you manage that system that allows you to buy a vehicle subscription. So rather than, you know, purchase or lease a vehicle, you can sort of pay a fixed subscription fee, but kind of all in deal with insurance breakdown, it's you can manage that. Um, yeah, big enterprise API platform, uh, and then something called SOTA, which is software over the air. So that's a software mm. platform for sending software to a vehicle, bit meta. Um, but we're involved in that sort of things as well. Uh, and yeah, various sort of web, web systems like that, essentially. So web apps, cloud, that's our sort of sweet spot. Yeah. And then, yes, again, we're not the only engineering team in JLR, of course, there's other teams also. There's, there's teams building that onboard software itself on vehicles. Most of that's done in-house and it's done by partners, for example. Uh, but yeah, that, that's, that's kind of the sweet spot where we focus. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, uh, I'm, I'm always as, as a connoisseur, I was joking earlier about the, the fun world that we live in. Like I'm, I'm always curious about like what digital means, right? It means different things in different domains, but as you're going through like, like what your group works on, it seems like there's kind of two things. One, like digital means like, you know, imagine things that are sort of like, let's say manual, I guess that's the opposite of digital or analog, right? But like kind of analog manual things and imagine like replacing them with software. And then on top of that, like if we do that, like you can think about the different sorts of new things you could do. Like, like, you know, for example, you might have like, I'm again, with my layman thing of thinking of things, you might have like power windows, right? Which is a very analog manual motor to put in somewhere. But if, if you made those more like digital and software driven, you might, I don't know, this is a dumb example, but now these power windows can do a dance, <laughs> right? Like you could actually send the software over the wire to do things some more complicated, which, which I think is like, you know, to, to, that's one of the more interesting, I don't know, maybe the most interesting, like meaning of digital is like, we're using like the fungible agile nature of software to like change how things work, right? Beyond just like, I can make this character bold, <laughs> right? That, to actually like change day-to-day -day activities and, and make them more interesting. Exactly. Yeah. 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 We, we, use software to improve the vehicle over its lifetime. It used to be in the past when you'd buy a car and that was it, you stuck with it for life. But we can now use digital and software to, yeah, to actually improve that car over its lifetime. The, the best example of that one is where um, our first electric vehicle, the Jaguar I-Pace, um, we've got a, a racing team in Formula E, uh, electric racing series. So that's all sort of software based as well. And the racing team there made some software treat weeks on the racing car to essentially extend the battery life or improve the efficiency mm. efficient battery. And we were able to then translate that change to the systems on the I-Pace road car and send the software update over the air 
to essentially improve the battery efficiency of a road car after someone had bought it, which is pretty cool, right? So mm, we can yeah. move these things huh. over the power of it. Yeah, or, or or like living in Amsterdam, the car I have now, uh, I just need to get uh, the uh, the English version of everything on the dashboard. That, yeah, that would be nice to get over the air. <laughs> I yeah. mean, just a very a very simple thing. So it's about to see it. So we and we can sort of switch on and off features remotely as well, right? So a good scenario there is imagine you've got a, a vehicle rental company like Hertz or AUS, for example, you've got a fleet of Jaguar and Land Rover vehicles. You can configure those. Per customer, so you can sort of enable and disable features, charge a bit extra to enable them on heated seats, etc. Um, right. And actually do that through a software configuration over the air as well. So the, the, the power of it is is quite immense. The flexibility it offers you and the possibilities it offers you going forward is pretty impressive. Yeah. yeah. That really yeah. helps the manufacturer as well, right? So that you're building the same car exactly. or you know many similar components, but you're you're just reprogramming the software either at time or or remotely. Um, exactly. Because as well, there's big Big challenge as well when you're when you think about those electric windows. It's not just some software from Jaguar that are deciding that when you push this button, it goes up and down. You're going to have components from Bosch and other manufacturers mm-hmm. tying that all together. So you have all the same problems that you'd see, like we see in the enterprise of older mm-hmm. software talking to newer software, APIs, abstraction layers, and everything in between. Is it the same for Jaguar as well? Uh, yes, it is. Yeah, it's very, very complex. The vehicle's massively complex. Like I say, I think there's something like a hundred different ECUs in the vehicle. Something like that. Um, a lot of them are built in-house, actually. We're, we're quite looking, Joe. A lot of it was bought in-house a while ago. Um, but yeah, there is still components from, yeah, Bosch, LG, other partners, et cetera. Um, and getting them to interact and talk to each other. And I think pendency management, that's the biggest challenge, right? So when I talk about sending mm. software updates over the air, so say we're going to update one of those modules over the air, there's a massively complex, you know, world web of dependencies and things, compatible versions, et cetera. It's very, very difficult to manage. So yeah, it's very, very complicated. Um, to understand which version, which ECU works with other versions, et cetera, what's compatible, what's not. I'm trying to coordinate that in such a way that we don't obviously brick someone's vehicle. That's the worst case scenario. But there's a lot of complex dependency management. Uh, we have what's called a digital twin that we use, which is a kind of, I guess, big database, big representation of all the different software on each different vehicle. Again, what version is compatible with which, et cetera. So it's a bit of a complex thing. It's not, not like I said, just firing software out, like you would maybe, you know, you can't tear it down like a Kubernetes pod and spin a new one up. It's a bit more complex than that. So. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting point you, you raised, Brian. Like it's, uh, it's, it's, I mean, this is a discussion for, for another time or, or, or here or whatever, but like it is, uh, maybe, maybe one of the, the key defining things of like, let's call it enterprise software, both like for office work so to speak but also as we're describing here for like like industrial things is is like at some point just managing your dependencies and everything you work with becomes almost a huge part of your job like just like if you, if you want to forward something like it's hard to like you know going back to my now silly analogy you just want to update the power windows and next thing you know you're worrying about like how the tire pressure is checked and like this doesn't really make sense on an ideal whiteboard, but at some point it made sense, <laughs> which, which becomes complicated. And so, and so like going, like kind of going to a slightly different area, but definitely in that area of dependency management. Right. So like, I find that in manufacturing of, of, of any type, uh, there is like, there, there's this weird situation that, that, that comes up in my head. So one in manufacturing. Like, I mean, it's, it's literally like they're in the world, the word you have lean manufacturing, which again, from my naive understanding 
is sort of like one of the better ways to do manufacturing <laughs> versus other ways. And a lot of what we've been doing in the past, let's see what, I always have to remember what, what year this is so that I can modify this. But in the past like 20 years or so, like we in the software world have been trying, I think genuinely, sincerely, very hard to like learn from lean manufacturing and, and, and the way that it works. And, you know, I'm often curious in manufacturing organizations, like how that's going for the software people, right? Like how the application of lean sync think uh, kind of manifests itself in the software world, because in theory, people working in software manufacturing companies would be familiar with it. And, you know, you might just run to someone in the, uh, the cafeteria who's like, oh, yes, I'm a triple judicial black belt of whatever. So I'm here to answer your questions <laughs> about it. But like, but like how, how, how do you apply like lean think to the software process? Good question for you. Yeah. And, and they are two very different worlds inside JLR specifically. I think if you go to one of the manufacturing plants and you haven't got a chance to do that, it's quite mind blowing the automation there and the process there. It's incredible to see it in action. Um, and yeah, some of the, some of the culture aspects as well. So there's something called the Andon cord where you can pull this cord on the manufacturing line. Anyone can pull it. If something's going wrong, everyone sort of mobs around an issue, review it, have a post-mortem if you like after the incident. Um, all that sort of cultural stuff is, is there in the manufacturing plants, but in the digital world, the off-board software world, before we arrived, a lot of that wasn't in place. It was very old school, if you like. It was, yeah, waterfall development, not agile, et cetera. It's kind of weird, yeah, it's kind of weird how you've got those two worlds because, like you said, there were plenty of people in the business who understand those principles of lead, maybe haven't related them to DevOps, and I don't specifically, they understand the culture side of it and they understand how that benefits. Um, but they're, they're very, two very different worlds, I think. Um, so I guess that, well, that's one of the roles that our team's played here has been trying to sort of, not force, but yeah, sort of drive some of that transformation to those similar ways of working, some of that similar culture in the digital mm. as well. Um, and it's tricky. So, so again, I don't know if it's a JLR specific thing. We've got a lot of people in digital who, you know, have been here for 10, 15, 20, 30 plus years. They've never really known anything other than JLR software development. So there's been a bit of an education piece there. Um, then the sort of actual transformation work as well. So we've tried to introduce things, introduce things like CICD. That was a whole battle in itself, as I'm sure we can talk about. Um, Agile ways of working. Again, that's all quite new. And I'm sure we'll talk about how that ties in with some of the other processes like finance, et cetera. The point, you know, it's very traditional dev support, dev test support, separate, separate teams, separate parts of the process. All that needs to change as well. Um, so yeah, the, the assumption from your perspective is right. Why, why is the whole business not working that same way? But for whatever reason, the software, the digital, the IT side of it was lagging behind and you're still sort of going through that transformation. I guess part of my challenge is then, yeah, is trying to relate what we're talking about in that world to what they know in the manufacturing world and how there's mm. so similar concepts in the core pathways. Like I say, that, that's the trick to it, really. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, Brian, tell me, like, like you, especially nowadays, like, like me, you talk with a lot of different organizations, right? And, like, uh, I, I, I wonder, like, there's that gap between, like, like, you know, here, lean thinking in the core business versus, like, I don't even know how to express it, but the theory that I have, and this is what I, I don't know, looking for, I'm always looking for validation, but you know, it's, 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 it's interesting. It'd be interesting to kind of like help shape the theory is that I think historically most organizations kind of think of software as like a 
supplier. Like, like in the same way they might ask for like, you know, we don't just need like, like the standard binder clip to hold our paper together. We need this special binder clip, but really I'm going to draw you a picture and I just need that binder clip and just deliver it to me. Right. There's, there's not sort of like a more sophisticated understanding, you know, like a product management approach to binders clips would annoyingly be like, well, let's step back. What are you doing with these binder clips? <laughs> but I, I don't know. It's, it seems like a lot of organizations just think of software as like an off the shelf thing. And, and therefore, I don't know, they don't kind of craft this more agile way of thinking about it intuitively or something. So to, to really milk your, um, your story about Power Windows, because um, I always love a good analogy, right? <laughs> especially uh -huh. when it gets silly. Um, like if you think about a Power Window, like in a modern car, as Mike was saying, you've got an ECU that's connected to computer, there's dependencies, software that's programmed, it can be put in many different cars, but there'll be an engineer somewhere that just says, why can't we just have a switch connect to a motor that just drives that? And it'll be nice and simple. It'll be straightforward. Mm. It'll be easy to, easier to fix, easier to, to work with, easier to design perhaps. And it's only when you look at the, the full picture of, well, actually that means we've got extra wires running into that door frame. That means that we've got more things that can physically break. It means that we've got a different switch in different cars. So it affects the manufacturing process. I mm. think software is kind of the same. You need to have an appreciation for how software can fit together ideally in a business. <clears throat> Whereas I think because we use it every day in our lives, it's very straightforward to think, well, we'll, we'll just make it do this or we'll just do that. And I think that's the difference. I think businesses, mm. especially say the last five years, have discovered that developing their own software, which on face value seems really complicated, right? There's massive value there because I think in the, the manufacturing industry, specifically around cars, like it used to be, we talked about zero to 60 and uh, engine sizes and literage and all that. Whereas now we're talking a lot more about the, the technology that's in cars. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because I'm working with some, some other automotives as well, a lot of my social media feeds and research is full of. The younger buyers, not that I'm calling myself old quite yet, but the younger buyers that are now looking at cars and they're really upset that the navigation software is not as good as what's on their phone, right? So I right. think challenge of understanding that we can make new value through software, but appreciating that means that what we're going to build might be more complicated and there's more steps. And I think yeah. carrying people through that process might be challenging because we know a different way of doing it, right? Yeah. 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 I get, I guess like maybe the way I'd clarify my, my foggy thinking when, when I, when I was talking earlier is like, I get, I guess from my perspective and, and maybe from the perspective of the three of us, a lot of organizations think of software as just like some commodity thing. Like it's not, it's just like a supply that you buy. It's not something that you want to customize and specialize because you can to really like be part of the product that you're building. Just exactly what you were saying is like, you know, a really good like software driven dashboard, like including the navigation and all this stuff is actually like a really important feature. Like it's, it's a new feature that didn't exist that becomes part of your product. So, and maybe that's, that's where like, I feel like a lot of the consternating, if that's a noun you can make into a verb, like 
like happens is that like all of a sudden, if you as an organization want to treat software as something other than a commodity, you've got to give it the same attention that you would the other parts of your core business. And then as you're getting to uh, Brian, and then you discover the complexity of software, <laughs> right? Which, which was easy to kind of hold if you, you know, hold back, if you didn't want to customize it uh, very much. Well, so and, and transforming people, right? That's always the, the most interesting part of all of these journeys is that we can bring you software, we could develop all these things, we could hire lots of people, but we need to take everyone on that journey. Um, and they're yeah. all going to do that at different speeds, universal across all the businesses I've worked with. Um, I'm, you know, I, I generally say, people say, well, I'm, I'm working with technology. Don't a lot of the stuff I do day to day is actually just working with people um, and helping them understand what that might look like and be more empathic in the way that we approach that change. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, uh, you, you can help us get, or at least me get a little grounded here, Mike, I've, I've, I've stuck my head way up into the, the, the metaphor, like <laughs> wacky zone. Uh, but as you mentioned, right, like, like, I guess about five years ago, you were moving from a, uh, you know, a more waterfall way of doing things right which which i'll presume means there's a lot of upfront planning like at least on a yearly if not multi-year basis you specify what you want on day one and if you're lucky you get exactly what you asked for on day 365 <laughs> right which which you know the clever way of phrasing that is like maybe you don't want it anymore but whatever right like so you have that kind of long process um so what we're like 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 what was first like the in-state goal that you were looking for with being more agile and like how did you sort of like like what's the broad journey that it took that it took you to get there and then maybe we can hop into like the little obstacles and you know stories of of each yeah good question and, and brian's right the majority of it is people based as well i will say that the, the software is the easy bit right um yeah cool. so five years ago yeah so you're quite right it's a very waterfall um Twelve months funding to do a project, and then it's done. That's it. Give me some requirements documents. See you in six months' time when it's finished. Well, yeah, that's the classic world, right? That's what we walked into. Um, in terms of end goal, I think it's probably a couple of things. So one of it was uh, around quality of software. So making sure you know, we put a real focus. Like we were just saying a second ago, with software becoming more and more a crucial part of the business. Start treating it the same way we do as as quality on our vehicles. You know, we wouldn't send a half built vehicle out into the world, but break all the time. We'd have the same. To do towards mm. software, so quality was one part of it, uh, and I think speed was the other one as well, right? So, again, because software is now everywhere, because software, as you just touched on, there is, is a differentiator these days. But to make sure that you know we can respond to change quicker, changing customer demands. That example I gave before about the, the sort of extending the battery life, being able to sort of make sure we can respond to, to those sort of things a lot quicker. So, so speed and quality, I think, were probably the two two main motivators. There's probably a cost thing in there as well, right? But yeah, I'm not one of those. Yeah, probably those, those two things. So in terms of the journey, um, one of the first things we went after in terms of bottlenecks, I suppose, what, what's some of the bottlenecks in the process that are stopping that speed at the moment? Um, the main one being essentially getting things into production, getting things released, that kind of, yeah, that release cycle, that lead time, whatever you want to call it. Um, so we went after what JLR calls our change management process, which is essentially to get any software change into a production environment. There's a sort of two week, very governance heavy process where you've got to sort of raise a ticket in a system. It gets reviewed and approved by 87 different people, 86 of you that have any understanding of what the change even is. Um, 
take the wages to go for that cycle. You've got to agree kind of downtime over a weekend. What's your rollback plan? It's obviously the exact opposite of DevOps, right? So that's the first thing we went after was how do we, uh, if it's going to take two weeks to do a production release, it's going to sort of kill any attempt we've got to do. There's um, mm. agile ways of working, et cetera. Make sure we can sort of do it multiple times per day. So that's the first thing we went after. Um, and again, the majority of that really was people side of things. It was convincing people about how this fancy new way of working we were talking about just as good, if not better than the original process, how, how it still addressed the risk in the same way, how it was, how it was even less risky to do smaller, more frequent deployments or good stuff using automation, et cetera, all the manual reviews, et cetera. That's the first thing when we went up, that was the biggest thing, the, big, the biggest win. Cause that obviously that, that unlocks everything else, right? Once you can start pushing things to production, whenever you want, it unlocks everything else, right? Sort of building in quality, responding to demand, et cetera, et cetera. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I'm, I'm rumbling on a bit there, but I think, yeah, that, that's, that's probably the biggest one we went after. Yeah. And that helps improve speed, improve the quality, and we, we're built on that foundation from there, essentially. And by doing that, by, by sort of having that first use case and started to push out some of our first few releases, we then earn that trust of people to say, actually, okay, the, these people know what they're talking about. Um, and from there, we've been able to build on, on, on the sort of further change. But that resonates with you, Brian, but that's the, that's the main thing we're talking about. It's a great way as well of showing intent, right? So people can see that you've made a real world difference in how quickly you can do something. All of a sudden, your the rest of your plans might not seem so crazy. Yep. Yeah. And, and well, so, so I'm curious, like, like a lot of what you mentioned was, um, well, not a lot of what you mentioned. You, uh, most of it was just releasing the software, right? W- was, was difficulty. And you know, does that, does that imply that the actual like programming was kind of fine <laughs> or, or did the, the like application developers, did they also like need to change how, how they were doing things? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's stuff around that, of course, that, that enables that automated, um, deployment so far. So we're talking about things like, um, automated testing that wasn't in place before either. Um, all right. All that sort of stuff, right? Yeah, just stuff that enables the DevOps um, release cycle. So yeah, automated testing, the, the CICD pipelines, all the infrastructure as code, other stuff that wasn't there as well. So it's all that other, other stuff that underpins the release process, if you like. Um, the end goal was the faster release cycle. And um, yeah, to your point, Kurti, yeah, there's some, some changes in the way we actually build the software, how we do the test, and the fact that we all do that together in one team, it's not handed off, built, tested by someone else, or by someone else, it's all done with that one team. There's that culture as well around, yeah, the building of the software. The end goal being release anytime. So, so how much, like, well, at least, at least, you know, in general, but in your direct experience, how much of the way people work day to day, whether it's in development or operations or like architecture, I mean, all, all the various roles that are associated with getting software out the door, how much do you think is driven by that pipeline and, and not driven as in the pipeline does it? but driven by the needs of the pipeline, right? Like, like analogously, like you can look at the way a city is designed and you can say like, ah, the city is designed around the technology of bicycles or the city is designed around the technology of cars. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and you're making me realize I've always been curious, like how the tool drives the culture, if, if, if that makes sense. And so like you have the goal, I want to put this, the CICD pipeline in place and therefore not only can we change things like having less manual reviews, which is great, but we also need to change these things to take full advantage of it. Yeah, definitely. We think that's the approach we took is we, we try to use that to force the change out, not force the change, we to drive the change elsewhere, right? 
to, re- to reveal the benefits of changing <laughs> yeah, or, or whatever they were. Yeah, we about it became apparent we couldn't have a separate test team. We couldn't do manual testing. We couldn't have this government um, process. Yeah. But yeah, exactly that. I don't know if we, we consciously did that, but once we started talking about the need to deploy much more frequently, it kind of unearthed all these other blockers we need to sort of work on as well, if that makes sense. Remember the answer? Yeah, yeah. Um, I lost my trail of thought that bit, Cody. Yeah, well, well, like for example, like a, a, along along the area there that I was asking on, it seems like, like 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 one consequence for application developers is if you are, if you're going to be releasing your software every week instead of every as as uh, let's say every month. I mean, if you have your final release every six months, probably in development, you're at least targeting like a month to kind of like bring all your code together. What, whatever, right? You've got your own internal things, but once you reduce your release cycle to like a week um because you want to have you want to support like the CICD doing this like like it's it's obvious but it has kind of profound consequences like you can do less each release <laughs> right like so you have to force yourself to do less code which sort of forces you as the way you're operating as an application developer to think in smaller chunks of functionality i don't know it has all sorts of consequences right and similarly like like I would imagine in operations, like if you're supporting a pipeline, like the way you do service request management has to change. I don't, I don't even know. Right. But, but it's, it's interesting to think about like what kind of constraints or what kind of motivations that you get when you just, because you're using a CICD pipeline. Even like architecturally, for example, right. So Beforehand, there was massive monolithic applications. Now we've moved to a more microservice architecture to change things more independently, all that sort of stuff. Itself. Um, right. But all, all that sort of stuff. That, um, like I say, I mentioned automated testing. That's the same thing. If you're going to release it quickly, you should be able to test it much quickly. So we can't suddenly have big manual test scripts that we can work through step by step. It's got to be automated and much more quickly. All that sort of stuff comes off the back of it. You're quite right. Um, yeah, the service management piece is another interesting one because, again, there's a uh, this is where perhaps we're a little bit separated from other parts of JLR. JLR's got its sort of traditional IT help desk, uh, and we can sure. sit on the map. But that's very much, um, yeah, ticket-driven, manual-driven again, and we kind of feed it hang off the back of that with our, with our instant process. So that, that's my next area to go after and change. Actually, is how we can sort of integrate more more closer with that. And um, yeah, you're quite right, Cody. And it, it's, it's it's driven some changes in. In the way that we work in terms of building the software, but the way that our stakeholders that we work with think about it as well. Right? So like I said, they, they can't suddenly come along with a big requirements document and say, see you in six months. We need that right. as well, right? It's got to be, we need to talk to you on an almost daily basis as well and get your feedback and make sure you're making the changes in the right way. For the people side of it as well as the tech side, changes off the back of that that need to, to release quickly to production, which is why that was the first one we went out. That's the enabler for everything else, I think, is getting stuff out there quick. Yeah, so, so you brought up you brought up a a situation that I'm realizing connects to like this this thing I've been uh, not stressing out, but like you know staring at the wall and thinking about like so so the one you brought up was that to 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 phrase it and again in an experimental way. So we wanted we we for reasons of quality and also for like speed of getting features out. So that so you have time to market basically, um, and and then also what comes with that is like we can. Experiments always a, be- a scary word in manufacturing, but we can try new things out business-wise and see if it's a good business or not, right? We're not committed to like 10 years of something because we decided 
this thing <laughs> in the physical, whatever. So, but you can kind of refine and try out new business ideas. Um, so you put a CICD pipeline in place so you can deliver things quickly. Um, and as a consequence to that, as you were saying, like the way you architect your software has to be different. And like microservices ideas are a good fit for that because microservices is basically like, it's kind of like to not go on and on about it. It's like having agility in your architecture by removing dependencies and kind of having smaller things. Um, now with that same kind of like, it's almost like a, uh, what's the, the idiom, a cart and a horse or a mule, like which one's leading which. And like, if I look over in the infrastructure space, I'm often wondering, like, I mean, here we are at VMware, we're big cloud native proponents, but I often wonder like, can you do agile development because you now have cloud native infrastructure or do you only do cloud native infrastructure because you want to do agile development, <laughs> right? Like, like what, where does it come in first? And so like to that, and I'm curious, like when you move to this like shorter cycle, like what did it uncover about the way you ran your infrastructure and you did your release management and all that operation stuff? Like what did it require you to do? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it uncovered a lot of stuff, right? Cause it, it, I've mentioned things like testing there, mentioned the change runner a bit. There's then things like security as well. And um, that's one of the part we've not thought on yet. And then the infrastructure mm. side of things. Um, yeah. I mean, you, I think when we, when we first wrapped up five years ago, there was the beginnings of some cloud infrastructure there, um, GC. But again, to get that, that involved, raising a ticket against the team, they'd spin some VMs up, exactly. And obviously we, we realized that that wasn't going to work with Ibis, so that, that led us to, to then using things like Terraform infrastructure as code and provisioning that in an automated way as well. Um, that's one thing you've got to cover. The security thing is important as well, because again, that's where you've got a traditional view of build a thing, do a pen test, be live. If you're releasing mm. again, 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 you need a different approach to security there as well. So that's where we started building things like, um, vulnerability management in our pipelines, et cetera. How do we do more automated pen testing on a more frequent basis? You know, all that things there. Um, then leads to who pays for this stuff. We've not talked about furniture. I'm sure we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, that, that got altered there as well. Um, but yeah, the whole, it, it, it's interesting what came first, Agile or what. I think they're both kind of hand in hand in that sense. We, we, we realized that, well, we knew from the start that we wanted to work in a certain way, right? We wanted to do Agile, we wanted to do DevOps. And that led to us uncovering all these different parts of JLR that sort of didn't facilitate that at the moment and driving that change. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I guess, I guess another way of, of like thinking about it, which, which I've been trying to ponder is like, why, why couldn't you just like use what you already had? <laughs> right? Like, like what, like what, uh, what was preventing you with like just the infrastructure and, the process we've kind of covered, but like the tools that you already had such that you would want to try out new things. Good question. Think about that one a second. You know, I, I think that's a really good question because I think this is where I've seen a lot of enterprises stumble. And I mm. think the answer is everything. <laughs> like if you want to build a car by hand, you would approach it. You'd approach everything in a yeah. very certain way. Whereas if you want to build 10,000 cars in a factory, in a manufacturing line, your thinking is different, your culture is different, your design is different, your parts and management supply chain is going to be different, the way you put them together is going to be different. You're not going to start at the bottom and work your way up. You're maybe going to do different panels of 10 cars first. You're going to be thinking about your release strategy in terms of having batches so that mm. you can you can see what's changed over time. So if someone reports a defect 
in a batch of cars, you can then make a change. Or back to the mics, this, this concept bikes where you've got this, this cable you can pull in the manufacturing process. And that's got a real bit of psychological safety in, in the workplace, right? You need to be brave enough to stop the manufacturing line to say, I think we've got a problem. Let's all gather around and fix it. And I think that's one thing we don't do well enough in software, but I won't get in, in that tangent just now. But I think, yeah. and sometimes it's where to begin. I think that's the nice thing about Mike's story is that he, he found a place to begin and start and then made changes. And we're still on that journey, right? It's going to be, you know, we're not, we're not fixed yet. That's why we're still, still all in gainful employment, which is lovely for, for technology. <laughs> yeah, I think it's everything. Mike, is that what would you say? Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think that's why, yeah, you're definitely right. We're, we're still on this journey, right? I don't, don't want to paint this picture that JLR is this perfect software house because we're not. Um, yeah, we've got a lot of challenges to fix still. Um, I've mentioned the instant measurement side of things there. Yeah, I, I agree, Brian. I think it, it included everything. Um, and the, the cultural aspect is really interesting to me. About, let, let's talk about psycho psychological safety. Um, I believe that's something that we've tried to influence as well, right? Because again, there's a, an element of when we had our first incidents or first few incidents, like, okay, who do I blame? Who do I suck for this thing? But we thought that we're going to take our time. It's a blameless culture. We're going to find the root cause. We're going to review it together and identify how it happens again. It's always a system problem, not a person problem, all, all that good stuff. That, that's another part of the journey we've not talked about yet, where, yeah, the, the tech is one part of it and that's fine. But the, the, the cultural side of things has been probably a bigger challenge, but almost certainly a bigger challenge. Um, trying to change people's ways of thinking around, uh, like I say, incidents, risk, security, testing, all that sort of stuff again. Yeah, I agree. It, it, it's just pervasive, Brian, you're right. So, so there, there's, there's two, two sort of hurdles or bottlenecks that, that, that I wanted to to talk about before, before we run out of time. And you, you just, one of them is, uh, as, as you keep saying finance, which, which, uh, which is great because people always tell me finance is a problem and I have no idea why. So it's always good to, uh, to ask people. Uh, but the, the other one was, um, changing how people work or changing the culture. Right. And then, and then I think, I think you're hitting on a nuance that I don't think about too much is changing their perception, which is usually fear about something, right? That's something, their trust about something. But, but, but instead of me feeding you ideas, as, as, I, as I've kind of been uh, allowing myself to do here too much, like, like what are those culture change problems? Like what are, the, what are, the, what are some of the, the issues that, that you faced? Because I often feel like if I went and read like a book on like just, you know, generic agile software development, we could all agree it sounds great, right? <laughs> like we can all agree on this end state that we want to get to, but like getting there seems very difficult. Yeah, there's a few cultural elements. So I think risk is definitely one of them. Um, there's definitely a kind of real risk aversion in JLR around software changes, possibly driven by, you know, being bitten in the past by big releases that have gone wrong, et cetera. Um, mm. if, you know, if you're going to do releases all the time, that's, that's quite scary. The risk thing there. Um, and of course, the impact of some of the software changes as well. If we're talking about changing software on a vehicle, there's a lot of risk to that, right? What, what if that goes wrong and you break someone's car or, you, you know, the braking system stops working or, you know, it, it can cause a lot of damage for that. So I understand the risk aversion in that sense. Um, another interesting part, and again, I don't know if this is JLR specific, is I guess I'd call it siloed ways of working. So when we're talking mm -hmm. about agile teams working much more closely together end to end, um, when you've gone into a world where you've got, you know, dev is here, test is here, release is here, but more supports there. Um, there was, yeah, there's lots of very, very 
siloed teams. So we've had to sort of change how those teams work together. Um, we've built kind of cross-functional squads to use another buzzword, um, of all those different types of engineers and different business stakeholders working more closely together than they have done before. I've mentioned a few times the idea of, you know, we get a requirements document thrown at us, see you in six months. That's had to completely change, right? With the relationship we've had with, between the digital teams and the different stakeholders from other parts of the business that have been completely changed. Cause as I said, we can't, we need to work much more closely together. Um, to your point about being a commodity, it's not something we can just chuck over the wall and get back when it's finished. We need to change mm. that operation. So that's a big, um, those are probably the two biggest things. Yeah. That, that kind of risk aversion and then, and then the collaboration side of things. It may be specific to DLR because JLR is just such a massive organization with so many different silos, but I'm sure plenty of other people out there, large enterprise companies see the same challenges, right? Joe Bryant, yeah. see a lot some people. You're not alone. Trust me. You're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> how, about, how about you, Brian? Like, like, what do you see as like, 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 like if we go like one or two as, as, as Mike was doing there, if we go one or two layers below, like culture change is hard, like, like. Not only what, but like, why is it hard? Like, like, like to, to pick one thing that I think is good with the perspective you have looking at as you were just, you know, uh, proving many different organizations, right? Like, like, so if you have, if you're changing the way that groups interact with each other or silos, right? Like, again, it seems like we can all agree that it would be better if we didn't have silos and we all work together. And yet, like, it's such a difficult thing to get people to change. And so, like, what is... I don't know. Why is that? <laughs> why, why is the status quo so powerful? So I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this because like change is really, really hard. And yeah. when we talk about it, we all just say change is hard and trying to build a structure around it is, is where I'm spending a lot of time. So I think there's a couple of things. I think first of all, um, in writing an article recently, you might recognize the subject of but bottom up and top down change. Um, so you did a great video series around bottlenecks and I've been writing up some of the, um, the blog post on it, writing on cocktails, what I do best. Um, <laughs> but in that I've, it spent a lot of time really looking at what drives top down and bottom up change to fail or succeed. Cause mm. I've seen both and I've tried both. Um, so I think top down change, we're all, rec we all recognize mostly as a marketing campaign. So. Leadership decide we're going to have a radical change towards agile. We're all going to go in lean training. We're all going to do this. We're all in scrum teams now, and you're all going to love it no matter what. Mm. And that doesn't work. And then likewise, bottom-up change, it hits a, a limit of local optimization. Because as you were saying, Mike, like you can you can build a fantastic system to to take a, an artifact and put it into production. But unless QA are on board, or less security on board, or unless these other teams are on board, you're going to be really limited in what you can achieve. And so I think the reason that change is hard is because you need a mix of that top down and bottom up, and they need to marry up in the middle. And that's not something I think many businesses are great at. I think we do one or t'other. We don't normally see those two things come together because I don't think there's often a strategy up front to do that. So I think when I'm thinking about my experience building platforms and helping customers with product, I spend a lot of time talking about advocates. And I think that's really important. Like you need to have people on the ground that are going to be advocates for what you're doing, why this change is important. And if we think about the bell curve of adoption for change, right? The uh, diffusion of innovation curve. That's right. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. um, 
we'll see that the beginning curve innovators, they just love new stuff. So they'll do, they'll do it anyway. You've got this other huge section though, which are basically pragmatists. They are going to adopt change as long as they can see value from it. And then unfortunately, you've got the other half of the bell curve, which are people that are going to be resistant because they know what they're doing just now and the change is really uncomfortable. And mm. let's be honest, it's uncomfortable for all of us, but it's just whether you can see a value out of it. And I think that's what we need to do with change. We need to find a way of getting that first half of the curve on board and then helping the second half. But it's, yeah. it's part technology, it's part process, it's part people. Again, change is hard because change is everything. Um, so again, that's a, a rambly, need to put a blog post together mindset. But I think that that's, that's kind of what I see in the real world is that we, we just fail to meet in the middle sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you, you talked about this a few times, Mike, but there's the, there's the needing to prove that it's a good idea. <laughs> Beyond an intuitive understanding of like, uh, you, know, you know, you have to prove that it's a good idea because essentially you have to like prove that it's worth the risk of it not working, right? And all the effort you're going to put in the position you're going to be in, which, which I think is, uh, I mean, it's like all common sense. It sounds really obvious when you say it, but it's, it's hard to actually put into practice. But you know, speaking of like, so again, the last topic, speaking of resistance to change. So what is, what is the deal with finance? Just like, give us, give us an overview. What's, how, how does finance help? How does it, how is it a bottleneck? You know, like what, uh, what's, what's the mismatch such that like, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say, we, we are trying to move to speed up our software development process. And boy, finance was a big help. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. So, some of my finance colleagues may say this. Um, yeah, so I think the, the biggest challenge I think I've seen with it is, I think about it a lot, is, is that classic project versus product mindset. Finance mm. wants a fun thing for six months, it gets built, bosh, done. Whereas obviously the world we want to live in is much more kind of ongoing funding for products. Um, and part of that, I think, is, is not necessarily knowing what you're going to get at the end of it. So again, if we move away yeah. from that world where we find set of requirements, here's my outcome, here's how much it's going to cost, done. To a world of, oh, we're agile, we don't necessarily know what you're going to get at the end of it. If I'm a finance person, I'm going to think, well, you want me to give millions of pounds and I don't know what I'm going to get back at the end of it. So I think it all ties back to that for me, I think, that kind of project versus product mindset. And that then links up with other things like, um, uh, we talked about platforms a little bit. So the funding of a platform to underpin some of this stuff is very difficult from a finance perspective. Um, if it's not tied to a specific project, a specific piece of work with a kind of very specific business outcome, it can be difficult right. to buy in for it, right? So that, that, and that then talks to other things like, you know, addressing technical debt, addressing kind of ongoing maintenance of products, et cetera. Again, unless you've got a specific stream of funding, it's difficult to sort of get that paid for. So, so I think it's tied about that. That's what I've seen in JLR certainly is if it's not tied to a specific project, um, it's difficult to kind of access that funding. And then that tends to, you know, funding resourcing, funding software tooling, et cetera, all that stuff has to be tied back to the project. So I wonder if that kind of underpins a lot of it, just switching that mindset again, to being much more long-term product focused and again, tied into risk, right? So the risk of you might end up spending a lot of money and actually get no benefit from it, but you, you'll, you'll learn something along the way. But to a finance person, of course, that's quite scary because that, that's just essentially throwing money away. Now. And, and so, so how do you like. How do you, maybe my understanding of the following is incorrect, but how do you like square that with like, well, we just kind of, kind of got to like mess around and discover new things about cars, <laughs> right? Like, like we don't really know what's going to result. 
but like we'll discover kind of like what you're saying, right? Like, like if, if you were, well, I don't know, maybe tell me if I'm being too naive here, but if you're, if you're funding the, uh, what was the electric sports car, the E2, like racing, like, like if, if you're funding that and then like, you couldn't have really tied that to a project of discovering a better way to run the car. It just sort of happens. And you sort of know that like, well, we're in the business of cars. So if we spend a lot of time just driving cars and observe what happens, we'll discover things. Now, what that results in, I have no idea, <laughs> but like it's, will be something. So it seems like that like finances. Okay. With that maybe, <laughs> but, but not with kind of what you're saying is like, we're going to build a platform and we don't really know what we're going to need to build, but we're going to need to build it. So could I just have some money for that? <laughs> You're right. Cause it's the same as that point we talked before about how manufacturing and software are different, but you know, they're using the same principles. If you think about a vehicle, we build prototypes, we design prototypes, they, they sometimes don't go anywhere. We throw money after that sort of thing. Yeah, it's the same sort of concept. Again, it's, I'm not quite sure why that doesn't translate into the digital software world in quite the same way. You know, you could, you could spend millions and millions on a prototype vehicle and it never actually get released eventually. We might just go, well, there's no market for it. Or actually there's some engineering challenge along the way. It's the same sort of concept again, for whatever reason, that just doesn't translate into the digital world. We've got, the same way. We've got that same challenge there to sort of, yeah, you use it as an analogy. I, I really like that analogy of sort of, yeah, relating back to lean manufacturing and using that. Maybe we need to use a kind of vehicle prototype thing as an analogy for the finance use case as well. I think one of the things that I've seen time and time again is that the, the divide between finance and, and software delivery is a lack of understanding. I don't think mm. that finance really understand IT, how it's built, why it's there sometimes, but specifically the mechanism of how we go about building it. So how you build a tar car with a prototype, et cetera, is maybe a, a, a closer understanding. Mm. Um, and I, as software people, I think we're terrible at understanding finance. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, so the, one of the best things I ever did was when I became a new manager of an engineering team and I realized how out of my depth I was, I called up one of the, the, the young finance guys that was helping me with various questions. And I said, look, can I, can I just sit down with you for an hour over coffee and you can give me like a five-year-old's guide to finance in this company. And I'll give you a five-year-old's guide to cloud computing and why, why that exists, what platform as a service is, what platform as a product is, what we're trying to achieve. One of the best hours I've had, I learned so much. Um, and we continued doing that, in fact, um, on a kind of monthly cadence, and it was really useful. And for me, it was, it was the ability to understand why finance perhaps have some struggles with software teams. Mm. A couple of big ones that stand out to me. Number one is that we don't spend the money that we say we're going to spend. We either spend much more or much less. And ironically, right. I didn't always understand that spending less is actually really bad too. Because if we've spent less money than we planned to, it's not like we, we hand it back like a savings account. The problem is that means that other parts of the business didn't get to do what they wanted to do. And the finance person now has a problem because now he's got a pot of money, but we said our stock price was going to be this. And the stock market likes repeatability. So if we're not on that line, that's a big problem. So there's a constraint on finance that sometimes it's all we're, una we're unaware of. I think the other aspect is that we are terrible, absolutely terrible at telling finance what value we achieved. So 
I, I'd love to know what it's like in JLR, but in many of the businesses I've worked in personally and the ones I'm working with, you go to finance almost like the gatekeeper, the troll on the bridge, right, to try and get the money. You get your money, you run off with it, big, big, huge sack of cash, and you promise you're going to do good stuff in a year's time, and then you never really report back. But also, <laughs> well, like the modeling that you've done is like, I need all the money, and I'll tell you when I'm done. And one of the things I changed in my time was that I began to look at big, scary projects like building a new car, building a new platform. And I said, well, actually, don't give me the money. Don't give me all the money. I'm going to want this amount over the year, but I want this amount this quarter, this amount next quarter, and this, and, and so forth. And if I get point at the end of the prototype stage, I might actually come back to you and say, I don't want the money. Or I might come back and say, I need more. And having that type of conversation flip things for me from begging for cash to actually being at Q3, you know, kind of at that scary point for finance people. And finance would approach me and say, how much more could you achieve if we gave you some extra money now? And could you get it all receipted and invoiced in time for our timelines? And that's because mm -hmm. trust has been built up and understanding. But what's it like in, in JLR, Mike? Is it that, is there a good system for reporting back to finance? Or are they so busy with just trying to guard the cash in the first place that there's never really that, that cycle that happens. Yep. It's, it's option B, Brian Tudley. Oh, yeah. I think we're, we're kind of missing that feedback. And that's not the trigger. Um, yeah, we're in, we're in that first situation you talked about where we, we take the cash run away and we're very, very bad at reporting back about what we've done back of it. Um, or at least talking to the finance people, we're very good at kind of talking to business stakeholders about the sort of value we've delivered and what the product does, but closing that feedback loop with finance and it's definitely a big gap. Um, yeah, to, to exactly what we just talked about then, right? So, so what we want to get to is exactly that kind of quarterly model. Just, just don't give us it all up front. Just do it bit by bit. Do the feedback lead review. Do we need to keep going? Do we need to, do we need to can this project? Have those discussions, but we're not there yet. That's the journey we want to go on. And I think that, that will help a hell of a lot. But we're, we're currently in the situation where we, we don't have that feedback loop at the other end to sort of close the loop and say, yeah, here's what we did. Here's what we didn't do. Give, give us some more money or don't. And it's a tremendous power out for finance because all of a sudden you've turned that agile thing we're talking about being quite scary into being a fantastic tool because now finance have an understanding that they don't have to spend all the money. They'll still get some value delivered along the way. They can pause a project. They can ramp a project all based on those outputs. So if you're doing really well and they've got spare money, great, let's double down. Well, actually, you know, financial world has changed. Some of, something else has happened at either macro or in the business itself, like we need to change our plans. Agile can help us do that. Modern cloud native practices can help us do that. Why monoliths are have their place, but they're they're harder in that regard. Um, but I think having that feedback loop is how we go building the trust so we can actually demonstrate that this crazy world of we don't know what we're gonna have at the end of it is better than waiting until the end and maybe building the wrong thing. Yeah, you, you know, y'all are like I, 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 I like the, the points you're making and one of them, so, so, so to add my, my, my bit to it, it seems like, like finance, maybe in respect to what we're talking about, wants three things they want, like to be as deterministic as possible, right? Like, you know, I mean, that's the way we all are with money. If, if I, if I put, you know, 50, 50 pounds over here, I would love it if one, it stays there and doesn't disappear. And then two, like it gives me a return that's known like in the direction that I wanted, right? Like, and in corporate finance, it's even more so. And then, and then too, like, I think, I think Brian, you were hitting on this is like, 
there's this expectation of repeatability, which is almost like being deterministic. Like, you know, that this thing is just going to keep acting the same way and returning the same thing. And I think that that hits on a little, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons why not spending enough money is annoying because if, if there's the opportunity to have made more money, <laughs> you, you would have wanted this person to spend more. Right. And, and, you know, kind of have that be repeatable and deterministic. You don't want to miss out on making money. And then one that I don't think about very much, but, but, but you two were kind of going over is it's almost like, it's like two sides of the same thing. Like finance wants to have, or finance would like to have options like optionality when things change, they can like put something on pause or spend more, which also implies they have controls. Like they can actually like having an option without being able to do anything about it is annoying. <laughs> it's more stressful. <laughs> right. And so they need those controls that they can go in there. And then, and then the, the other side of that, which, which I'll, ha I'll have to think about some more, but I think is, I think it's something that we should work on in an industry is not only like speaking the language of finance, but like, like y'all were saying, we should just speak to them <laughs> like, like at the end of the cycle. And then also know how to show the, the, as you were saying, uh, I think it was you, Brian, the value that got delivered. Right. And so like, I think, I think intuitively, like if we build out a platform and the middleware and all this stuff, like we understand the value that was achieved, but like, it's hard to, ex like, you have to express that to people, right? You have to say that. And, and it takes a certain amount of, of meeting each other in the middle about the technical parts of it, right? Like you've got to get somewhere beyond like, I don't know, I just bought you a bunch of computers. Why isn't it working? And you have to say like, well, let me tell you how that works. <laughs> right. And, and why investing in this cloud native way of doing stuff, just as an example, was better than this other way of doing it, even though it's just computers or something like that. But I don't know. I, I, I don't know what the uh, further delve into that is, but I, I think, I think as y'all two are getting to, it's just sort of like uh, a misunderstanding, not even a misunderstanding, just not knowing how each side works and having different expectations for it. Uh, which, which I think is helpful. Well, speaking of being helpful, we sh we should, uh, we should let Mike get on to the other helpful things he does rather than entertaining us. Like it, it was, it was great to go over this stuff. It was really nice that, uh, uh, you know, Brian's been working with you and, and he, uh, he thought to bring you on here. So that's good. And, and I think, uh, your, your willingness to come on is always great because I find that people in your position, uh, don't always share with the rest of the community <laughs> what, what's going on, you know? If only because they got other stuff going on, <laughs> but, but thanks a lot for going over that. That, that was, that was great. If, uh, is it, is there anything you want to, uh, if people are interested in more that you would point them to any, uh, any, uh, things like that? I mean, I'm, I'm always happy to talk about any of this sort of stuff, DevOps, cloud, software engineering, give me a shout on LinkedIn. I've got no ulterior motive in terms of hiring anybody. So it's a great conversation. Yeah. Thank, thanks to both of you as well. Bethany. Good to talk to you. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. Well, as always, this has been uh, Tanzu Talk. You've either watched a video of this or uh, you've downloaded a podcast or perhaps one of your, your parents or someone in your house is listening to it while they're making a meal and you're thinking, what is this? You, you're being subjected to it from, uh, from the kitchen. Uh, but if you want to get the show notes from this, uh, we'll put any relevant links. You can go to TanzuTalk.com and find out how to subscribe to the podcast if you prefer audio, find the videos, things like that. And as always, thanks, and we'll see everyone next time.